God's word, beginning in verse 1 of Luke 17, says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come in once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Cupid, the Roman god of love, has the power to make people fall in love. Yet what if Cupid's power only lasted long enough for them to love each other temporarily? That in his view of love, what was good is just falling in love, but there was no ongoing relationship. Well, we would be shocked because storytell romance is supposed to be happily ever after. It's supposed to go on. The perfect romance is not a flicker. It's a flame that burns brightly for years to go on. However, when it comes to the love of God, many people just want the flicker of light that keeps them from hell, but not the ongoing flame of love. You know, they make a profession they attend religious services, and they have a general sense, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Muslim. Beyond that, though, they see no need and have no desire to go much farther. It's kind of the relationship you might have with your insurance salesman, the Ned Ryersons of the world. Yes, you want to know their name, but you really don't want them to know you that well, and you just want to make sure when trouble comes, they're going to take care of you. But you don't really want a relationship with them. And sadly, that's the way many people approach God. Yes, I want him for the big emergencies of life, but day to day, I don't really want much involvement with him. But Jesus this morning is showing us if we're his disciples, if we are truly one of his, that's going to involve a lifestyle of love, a lifestyle of following him, that our actions, our relationships, our thoughts are changed. They're guided. They're transformed by him. This morning, Jesus is going to give us four key aspects of being his disciple and living a life that loves God each day. If you have a bulletin, you can see this outline on the back in verses one through three, at least the first part of three, we'll see that Jesus warns us, beware of tempting others. Then he's going to tell us to seek repentance and give forgiveness. Then third in verses five through six, trust God. Lastly, fourth, verses seven through 10, do your duty. You may have noticed this transition in verse 1 because it says, he said to his disciples. And as you read through any part of scripture, but especially Luke, it's important to realize who is Jesus talking to? He's not talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking to the crowds because he has different messages for them. But to those who've already trusted him, he has a message. This is how you live as my disciple. 
So if you're not a Christian today and you're wondering, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? The first thing you need to know is, I need to trust Christ. And then Jesus is showing, how do you live that trust out? Well, here he's showing us. And he says, verse 1, temptations are sure to come. Literally, it says, it is impossible that stumbling blocks not come. Well, what's a stumbling block? Well, that word is a word they use to refer to a trap or snare, even the stick that held the trap up. It's something that gets you caught so you can no longer keep on walking. You know, we refer to these as temptations. And it's a definitive fact, Jesus says, you are going to have temptations in your life. Tempted to find your ultimate satisfaction in something besides God. Tempted to dishonor God and the authorities he's put in your life. Tempted to respond to people with sinful anger. Tempted to shade the truth a little so you're not as in bad a situation. But Jesus goes on beyond the reality that temptations will come. He says, but woe to the person by whom they come. You know, woe is a word of warning, a calling out of danger ahead if you don't stop what you're doing. It's saying God is going to condemn you if you don't repent. But then Jesus adds, it'd be better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you be thrown into the sea than that you cause one of these little ones to stumble. You know, millstone is one of those words that is exactly what it sounds like. It's a stone used at a mill. Normally weighed about a thousand pounds, and it was rolling around. It would crush the grain and turn it into flour. Well, if you go to the sea and put a thousand pound weight around yourself, and then cannonball, you're not going to bob up and down. You're straight down. Jesus is saying it's better to die than to be the source of causing others to sin. Specifically, little ones. Well, who are little ones? Well, probably people young in the faith, people young in age. You know, to tempt anyone to sin, but especially the most vulnerable, is worse than death. Well, Jesus is giving us this warning, but how are we stumbling blocks for others? Well, generically, there's kind of two ways the New Testament shows us. We can be a stumbling block in our teaching, what we say, or in our actions, what we do. We see this, for example, in our actions, Revelation 2.14. God rebukes the church in Pergamum, for they are a stumbling block, it says, in their eating of meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. Their actions are leading others to sin, and they're a stumbling block. But this can also happen through our teaching, what we say. Romans 16.17, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create stumbling blocks, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. You know, someone is following after Christ, they're loving him, and then someone comes and they start teaching him legalistic doctrine, that you shouldn't do this and you should do that, and you're better with God if you do this, and they get derailed and they get trapped on themselves, thinking about themselves and not Christ, or they're sprinting after Christ, and then someone gets them really focused on one doctrine, and they start caring more about everyone being doctrinally precise in this area rather than loving God. This is one of the many reasons God warns, let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, for we will incur a stricter judgment. So thus in our actions, in our teaching, we can cause people to be tripped up and snared so they're no longer running for Christ. We become a stumbling block. 
And so then Jesus gives us a warning, a command, actually, verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Now, you may have noticed that. It didn't say, so start watching everyone else. Picking your head up, looking, how are they doing over there, huh? Yeah, yeah, they're doing all right. Uh, nope, not so good. Making mental judgments about everyone. No, first, pay attention to yourself. You know, the emphasis here is on paying attention. Probably many of you have taken road trips. If you take a road trip through West Texas, you have to be vigilant. You have to pay attention because sometimes you're driving along and you see an exit and you, and then you think, did that sign just say 60 miles to the next gas station? Ooh, I need to pay attention because out here, getting stranded is going to leave you a long way from nowhere. You're vigilantly watching. Where's my fuel gauge? Where's the next gas station? You're always watching because you don't want to be stuck out in West Texas. No offense to West Texas people. But here, Jesus is saying there's something much worse than running out of gas in West Texas. That's being careless with your words and actions and then that leading other people to sin. Paul similarly warns in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the, the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you'll save both yourself and your hearers. The more visible your Christian walk, the greater influence you have for good or ill. You know, any flagrant sin is harmful, but when done by a pastor, by a church leader, by someone who's standing up for their faith in the workplace, when they sin, it has a greater effect. Sadly, such public sins often then lead people to say, it's all a fake. I'm never going to church again. I'm never going to believe that stuff. And yet, though this is true of church leaders, it's really true of any Christian. Parents, are you guarding your teaching and conduct for your children? You know, sometimes parents are very good to get their children in church, but every Sunday on the way home, it's, uh, well, we sang that song again. Oh, the pastor got on that soapbox again. Oh, man, can you believe Mrs. Jones, the secretary, put there instead of there again? Oh, I'm going to have to serve in next nursery next week. All that church ever wants. Money and service. Money and service. That's all they ever want. And they're getting their children in the right place, but their constant grumbling and complaining is leading their children to go, yeah, that's not, that's a big, that's a big phony. That, that church isn't real. So we have to guard our teaching and conduct. Your actions can be, can undermine what you're trying to get your children to believe this isn't just for parents and pastors though adults and teens are you guarding your teaching and conduct with your friends your teaching is not just formally you know when you sit down in a classroom or here teaching is what do you say to your friend when they're having a trial and they're trying to encourage them when they have a blessing and you're trying to rejoice with them when you're posting about what life is great anytime we talk we're teaching what life is about so do your post, your words, your counsel, they do they encourage people to find their satisfaction in God or on another fun evening, another great outfit, more friends? On your way out of another long, pointless meeting, do you encourage your coworkers to respect your boss? Or are you the one leading the, well, that was a waste of time. When mom and dad leave, do you the one who says, Come on, they won't know what we do. When 
your teacher leaves the room at school, are you the one who says, hey, we can stop working and talk for a while? Are you the one who loves pushing people's buttons? Ooh, I know what sets them off, and off they went again. Oh, love it. You're tempting them to sin. And Jesus is asking us, do our words and actions encourage those around us to a greater love for God? Or are we being an agent that is tempting them, ensnaring them, so they're not running hard after God? Well, Jesus warns that leading others to sin is worse than even death itself. What if it's not causing someone to sin? What if they've sinned against you? What should you do then? Well, Jesus answers that in verses 3 through 4. Seek repentance and give forgiveness. Jesus says, verse 3, if your brother sins, don't say anything because that would be judgmental. In fact, you really shouldn't call anything a sin except calling things sin. Just accept everyone and love unconditionally. Well, actually, that's not what he said, but that's what we keep hearing that Jesus is telling us. That's the message of Jesus. Just love everyone, accept everyone Except Jesus doesn't say tolerate everyone's actions. He says, when they sin, you are to rebuke them. Yikes. Like, make a mental judgment that was right or wrong and then tell them? Yes, it's actually quite clear. That's what he wants us to do. Now, he doesn't mean we need to go around and be self-appointed junior Holy Spirits, making sure everyone feels guilty about their sins. Oh, yes, you should feel guilty about that. Oh, yes, you should feel guilty about that. That's not what he's talking about at all. Nor is he saying we should self-righteously look down on others and go, can you believe they did that? Jesus already said, pay attention to yourselves. That's who you need to focus on first. But it's not only yourselves. If someone has clearly sinned, then the most loving thing you can do is tell them that what they're doing is wrong and call them to stop. Your unwillingness to do this is often not because we love others so much, it's because we love them so little. We care more what they think about us, and they might be angry, they might misunderstand me, they might think I'm a rude person if I say this. But in love, we must gently, humbly, clearly, at the appropriate time, call them to turn from sin. Part of the problem here is, We just really don't think that sin is that big a deal or that God is really that great. Yet even in these verses, Jesus is showing us he could not be more serious about sin. He just said it's better to die than tempt others. Sin is an affront to God that ruins our relationship with him. And so here, now we're not slowing others down, but we're seeing that they are slowing themselves down in their walk with Christ. And out of love, We want to say, no, you're ruining the best thing in your life. Because by sin, we're destroying, we're ruining our relationship with God. Psalm 36, 7 through 9 says, How precious is your love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of delights. For with you is the fountain of of life. Your God, knowing God, is the fountain of life. That's where joy comes from. So if someone is living in a way that's ruining that, out of love, we want to say, you're taking away what's best. Don't do that. 
Well, Jesus continues, though, and this time in verse 4, he makes clear it's not just a general sin done, but it's something done to you. So how should I respond when my boss or my spouse or my kids or my sibling or whatever it is sins against me? Well, you go and you tell everyone how horribly they've sinned against you. Or you say, will you pray for me? Because I don't really know how to respond to them sinning against me. Because it's better for me to confess their sins to you than to have them confess their sins to me. Well, no, that's obviously not what Jesus says, but that's what we do. We make mental notes so we can go, yeah, just ask me for something. I'm not going to help you. i got a list of things you've done. Jesus says, forgive him. You know, the solution is really simple. It's not that complicated. You don't need ten friends to tell you what you need to do. Forgive them. It's short, it's simple, and it's life-changing. You know, most relationships aren't ruined because of one big event. Most relationships are ruined because of a history of remembered events. That they don't forgive one by one how they've been sinned against. And every time there's an issue, they're now dealing with that issue and the hundred issues that they bring back up again. Forgive each time. And this really is reminding us that the goal of confronting and rebuking someone is not so we can domineer over them. Well, pfft, I can't believe you did that. It's to restore them. The goal of rebuking others is only for restoration not to rake them over the coals or hold it against them. Well, Jesus continues because he knows what we're going to ask. Well, hold on, Jesus. Okay, I can do that once, but they're going to do it again. I know they're going to do it again because they've done it again before. What do I do then? You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And I'm no fool, so I'm not going to let you get me again. Well, Jesus says, though they sin against you seven times, and each time they repent, then you must forgive them. And the rabbis taught, Jesus will forgive, or God will forgive you, up to three times. And Jesus is showing, no, no, it's not three times. It's more than that. Now, it's not even just seven times. It's not like number eight. You're like, ha, yes, grudge time. Nor is he saying, you can never question if they're punching you and saying they're sorry each time they're doing it and rearing back, that you can't go, hmm, I'm not sure they're actually sorry about this. But the reality is if most of us are honest with ourselves, it's not that we're struggling with the eighth time to forgive. We're struggling with the first time to forgive. That they did that to me, and they deserve to pay, and they're not going to get off easy. And you know what God says? You're right. They do deserve to pay. They do deserve to be punished. And yet I love them. And so I sent my son to die for them, and he took that punishment for them, and I offer forgiveness. And won't you do the same that I've done for you? They do deserve punishment, but that's why I sent my son, because I love you. And will you express that love to others? He is calling us to model and live out the same forgiveness he gives to us. You know, Luke here says this much shorter. We read the extended version of this in Matthew 18. And there, Jesus even warns, look, if you won't forgive, it's revealing a heart that actually doesn't know God's forgiveness. Forgiveness. You know, we must be on guard, for we know people, because we know ourselves, 
who can remember what your brother did 15 years ago and you like to tell everyone about it? Who can still talk bitterly about the way the boss treated you in that meeting? Who can talk about that last church and those hypocritical people there? And We have our list. And yet Jesus says we need to forgive because we have been forgiven. Now this passage says we're to forgive if they repent. But even if they haven't repented yet, we should have a heart attitude that longs for their forgiveness. That is saying, I want to forgive you. And the Bible also gives you a great privilege. Proverbs 19.11 It is a glory to overlook an offense. You don't have to wait till they repent. You can just forgive them right away. First Peter 4, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now part of the problem in all this is we just don't always understand what we mean by forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Ken Sandy in his excellent book, The Peacemaker, writes, Forgetting is a passive process in which a matter fades from merely from memory merely with the passing of time. Forgiving is an active process. It involves a conscious choice and a deliberate action and a deliberate course of action. And he goes on to say that forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not how you feel. It's not a forgetting. It's a promise. You know, when you say, I forgive you, you're promising at least three things. First, I'm not going to dwell on this. Yes, it's going to come in my mind, but I'm going to mentally say I'm not going to keep thinking about this. Second, you're promising I'm never going to bring this up to harm you with others or you. Yes, the, the situation may come up again, but I'm not going to bring it up to hurt our relationship or hurt the way other people view you. And third, this isn't going to hinder our relationship. It's in the past. That's what we're saying when we say, I forgive you. It's impossible to forget some things. But when they come in your mind, what do you do with them? And Jesus is saying we need to not dwell on it. We need to not bring it up to others, and we need to not let it hinder our relationship. You know, a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus serious teaching on divorce and how he wants us to have marriages that honor and reflect him. And we said then, look, all marriages are going to have problems, and sometimes in those problems, they're so bad, we need to get outside help. We just can't work through it, just the two of us. Now, why would we think that if that happens in marriages, that's never going to happen anywhere else? And yet sometimes, something happens in the church, and boom, they're gone. One issue, and they leave. I'm never going back. I wanted church to be like family. Well, I don't know what your families are like. But my family has a lot of wonderful times, and we have times we have to work things out. And that's the same way in any church, not just our church. Any church you're a part of, work it out. There are going to be times, times even like marriages where you're going, we've tried to work this out three times, and we can't. Well, grab an elder. Grab a wise and mature brother and sister and say, we love each other, we're committed to each other, and we can't work this out. I'm not just going to leave and go to another church. I'm going to fight to maintain this relationship for our good and God's glory so that he might be honored. You know, all of this is calling us, Jesus is calling us to live a loving life for God by how we relate to others. And yet this can't happen 
if our relationships only involve sitting in here for a couple hours on Sunday morning and then never seeing each other again. We need to be involved in one another's lives, talking to people while we're here and then seeing them in coffee shops or our homes or the park or other places. You know, as Americans, we love our privacy. We love our independence. And yet Jesus calls us to live so that our lives are entangled, so that we can love one another, so they can love us, so they can point out our blind spots and help each of us run more passionately and swiftly towards Christ. Well, the disciples are probably responding like I am. Verse 5, Lord, increase my faith. How in the world can I ever do this? How can I forgive people who keep acting so hard to me, so wrong to me? I need more faith. And that's what the disciples call out for increased faith. Our third section, trust God. And notice they didn't say give us faith as though they didn't have faith. They're saying, look, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to do this. And Jesus replies basically by saying, look, it's not the quantity of your faith that matters, but the source of your faith that matters. He says, look, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and thrown into the sea, and it'll happen. On Jewish culture, a mustard seed was the proverbially smallest seed possible. And a mulberry tree had such extensive roots, so deep that the rabbis said they lived up to 600 years. And so thus Jesus is saying, look, with the smallest amount of faith, you can do incredible things. Now the image of the tree being uprooted and thrown into the sea is hyperbole. So I know some of you are disappointed. You wanted the Yoda skills of being able to be in the swamp, and oh, up comes the ship. I have faith, and it brings it out. Except Jesus never did that. The apostles never did that. Jesus is saying, look, you can do incredible things with faith. Now, do you even realize the power in this room? In this room are 11 outlets. If you, I wouldn't count it. I'm nerdy. Anyways, 11 outlets. And any one of those instantaneously can give you 120 volts of power. At any time, you can tap into it. You can vacuum this room. Now imagine I asked you to vacuum the room, but I said, but you actually have to propel the brush and roll on that vacuum by hand. So get it up and get it going and then vacuum. I can't do that. I don't have enough power to get that wheel spinning so it'll suck up. I need real power. I said, okay, well then you can just plug it into the wall and that thing will, it'll suck it all up. Now does it really matter if you're like, eh, I mean just imagine you didn't believe in electrical power and you're like, and you kind of slowly put it in. And then you go over to the vacuum and you very, like, tip it on. Is the vacuum going to work any different than if you just go, okay, and shove it in and go turn the power on? Well, no, because the power has nothing to do with how much you trust it. The power is powerful because it is. And Jesus is saying, look, it doesn't matter if you come to God tentatively or if you come confidently. If you come to God, that's power. It does not depend on your amount of faith, but the source of your faith. And so Jesus is saying, look, don't think about how great your faith is. Think about how great your God is. And with that great God, you can do something like cast a mulberry tree into the sea. Gladys Alward was a woman of small stature, but great faith. 
She was only four feet, ten inches tall. But she trusted in God. At age 26, she felt a call to go serve God in China. And though the mission agency denied her, she raised her own money, bought a train ticket, traveled through Russia, Siberia, and made it to China to serve with a 73-year-old woman. And there, God accomplished many things through her. But one of the more amazing is that she took in over 100 orphans. But things got bad because during World War II, the Japanese invaded. And then they retreated. And then they invaded again. And people showed her, look, they have, they're printing posters. They'll give $100 if they catch you. You need to flee. So she took 100 orphans with her through the mountains and for 12 days led them, led them and finally they thought, oh, we're safe, we're good. And they got to the Yellow River. And the Chinese government and the Chinese military had said no boats can be on the rivers because if the Japanese see boats and their bombers, they're going to come over here. And so no boats and they won't come. And so the children are asking, well, why aren't we crossing the river? And she said, well, we don't have any boats. There's no boats. Well, Gladys had taught them about their great God, and so they said, well, why don't we pray? Because God can do anything. So they all knelt and prayed, and they sang. And as they were singing, a Chinese officer came up, hearing the singing, and said, what's going on? And they told him, and he goes, I can get you some boats. You know, there are countless other stories we could tell of her or others, of things that seem to defy belief. But Jesus is showing us that with faith as a mustard seed, things that seem humanly impossible can happen. It's knowing that we have a God who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to his power at work within us. You know, the mustard seed faith can do mighty things. It can grab hold of the forgiveness of God offered in Christ and remove all of your guilt. It can give you the power to release your bitterness and to forgive that person who wronged you all those years ago. A few years ago, I read a survey, and it said 94% of Americans think forgiveness is an important aspect of life. But the interesting thing is in that same survey with the same people, only 48% said they actually forgive people. We know we should do this. We know it's good for our life. And yet, I just don't have the power to do it. And Jesus is saying, with faith in him, even as small as a mustard seed, you have the power to forgive. So confess your inability. Lean on him and see what a mustard seed of faith will produce in your life. And so faith in God through Christ has the power to do mighty things. And yet, sadly, you know, once we start to live a faithful life, our flesh and Satan, they do a judo move. They take your strength and they use it against you because then starts to whisper, boy, phew, all these people around, I hear all their bitterness and phew, I forgive people. Boy, can you believe this? Everyone else, I don't see their name on the sign-up list. Who's here cleaning the church? Oh, yeah, that's me. I know all my coworkers there sleeping around, they're partying. Who's being faithful to God? That's me. And we talk about all these things. Oh, those parents give their kids tablets. I'm reading Chaucer to my children. I'm a pretty good parent. And we start going, I'm pretty good. 
you know, God's probably pretty happy with me. I'm a really good servant. You know, I think God actually even owes me because of how good a servant I've been. And Jesus says, let me tell you a parable. Our first point, verses 7 through 10, do your duty. Because Jesus gives this illustration of a master and his only servant. And he just looks, well, ask, if this master's out working in the field and then he comes in, is the master then going to say, hey, why don't you sit down? Why don't you relax? I'll make you a meal. No, no, of course not. He's his only servant. He's going to say, okay, thank you, maybe, but I'm hungry, so go change and make me dinner. And then will he thank the servant for what he's done, Jesus asked? Well, no. Now, this is not about social politeness. Jesus is not saying masters will never say thank you, being polite and kind to one another. He's asking, are his obligations removed because he did something? Does the master now owe him because he did his job? And the answer is no, of course not. It would be like the CEO going, does the CEO say to the janitor, hey, thanks for sweeping. Now you want to come to the boardroom and I'll serve you lunch? Well, no, the CEO doesn't do that. He says, thanks for doing that and we're almost done with lunch. Come clean up in here too. That's his job. That's what he does. You know, with God, Jesus is saying, look, there's no quid pro quo. God doesn't owe you any favors because you've done what you're supposed to. When we do what we're supposed to, he says in verse 10, we should realize we're merely doing what we were obligated to do in the first place. There's no special applause for raising your children right, going to church, reading your Bible, memorizing scripture, or any other good thing you could do. You should be doing it because the master calls you to do it. You know, as you read through scripture, God gives us many metaphors of our relationship with him. He's our creator. He's our father. He's our friend. He's our savior. He's our mother hand, and we could go on. However, what happens is often Christians focus on one of those two metaphors to the exclusion of the rest. They only focus on God as their creator, and they lose sight of the fact that he also loves them personally. Or they focus on God's my friend, and they lose sight of the fact that there's still requirements and obligations for you to do. Or God's only my master, and they see no warmth. And yet, sadly, in the U.S., probably this metaphor, this true idea that God is our master is one that people don't like today. It cuts to our pride that God owes me. God really wanted me on his team. He's blessed to have me in his kingdom. I'm important. I've told this story a few times before, but it so vividly captures this idea that I'll share it again. A friend of mine used to teach sign language in elementary school, and one year, when he was still president, President Clinton took a tour of her school. And she was able to sign for him while he talked. And she was even able to talk to him. And then after he left, they said he, she could have the glass he drank from. And if you ever go to her house, it's pretty quick within the first 30 minutes you're there. that She tells you this. And then her husband goes in the back room and he comes out with the cup, which he's inverted his fingers in so you can still see Clinton's smudge print on there. And they show you the glass. Well, why? Because it was a privilege to serve the president. Something even 20, 30 years later, she still boasts about. If it's a privilege to serve a president, how much more is it a privilege to serve the king of kings? It is a joy, a delight to serve him. It's not just our duty. It's more than that. And yet the fact is, 
we flip this all around and we think, Phew, God's really blessed to have me. I'm a pretty good servant. And we've reversed the roles. God's not blessed to have me. I'm blessed to serve him. You know, the amazing thing is that God uses us, not how faithful we are at being used. Now, of course, this is not the full picture of our relationship with God. In fact, though, it's only to the degree that we understand this, that the other aspects are wonderful. It's only as we understand that God owes us nothing that we then are astonished and amazed when we will one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's only as we realize he owes us nothing that we're amazed that he took out his outer garments and he washed his disciples' feet. That the master came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What? That's not how the master is supposed to relate. The master is supposed to say, you do this for me. Well, God's not like any master you've ever known. He comes to serve. He came to give his life so that you might know him, that you might be forgiven. Knowing such a God then makes the task and duties he's given us not drudgery, but delight. Duty does not, and in fact should not, have a negative connotation in relating to God. It is our joy and privilege to be able to serve God. It is our duty which is a joy and privilege. So Jesus has given us four hard but four joyful ways to follow him as our master. To love God in all of our life. The first two involved our relationships with others so that we vigilantly guard against tempting them to sin. And then in love, we rebuke and forgive when people sin against us. The second two involved our relationship with God that we see our need to trust him and his power that can work in us. And the need to realize that it's our joyful duty to serve him. And so are you following God with your all and seeing the privileges in it? Or is God more like your insurance agent? He keeps you from big dangers, but you really don't want him around that much. Well, perhaps you relate to God the way Stephen Slater related to his job. The adults may remember the story, 2010, when Stephen Slater had had enough. He served as a flight attendant for JetBlue, and on this final voyage, two women had begun the flight by arguing over who got the overhead compartment for their bag. He was already rather unnerved, and then as the plane touched down, one of the women began to get up to get her bag, even though the stay buckled light was still on. Stephen told her to sit down, and she didn't, but as she turned with her back, she smacked him on the back of the head. Enough was enough. So as the plane taxied to a stop, he got on the intercom, he cussed the woman out, he grabbed a beer, threw the door open, true story, pulled the emergency chute, and slid out. And you might wish your house, your job, your church had an emergency chute that you could, and I'm out. Because here I am, I'm serving, I'm slaving away, and you know what? No one respects me. No one thanks me. Why am I doing all this? And Jesus says, trust me. Forgive them. Rebuke them at times. Keep doing your duty. You know, the Stephen Slaters, they get the accolades now. We're all going, yeah. But Jesus says there's only one who's going to hear 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Those who keep following him, who keep forgiving, who keep loving, who keep trusting and doing their duty. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we would have no power to do this if it was not your power given to us. Oh Lord, we need you. Lord, and we don't need to worry about how much our brother or sister or parents need you. We need you. Would you empower us to live out your character to this world so they might see you, so they might have what is truly best, you yourself. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.